Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I was sitting in China by myself. I wasn't sleeping very much at all. And in fact, I remember, you know, taking calls at 4 a.m. and midnight and all this kind of stuff, just trying to hustle all of the options together to make sure that I knew that I had done absolutely everything and that I was doing this right. And yeah, sitting in that chair and hitting post on that was just on the tail end of within the last couple of hours of literally letting go of everyone in the company. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. And you are in the right place if you're after inspiration, uplifting stories and practical advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. So if you're looking to get ahead or trying to figure out what's next for you, stay tuned. And if you're enjoying our podcast, share it with a friend now. Absolutely. Share the love, people. And now to this week's episode. Our guest this week has been on an incredible journey in the past decade, building an iconic online retail empire to global heights and then having no choice but to close it all down last year. We're talking about the Shoes of Prey co-founder, Jodie Fox. The trailblazing Shoes of Prey became a global startup and fashion darling during its nine years in business, offering shoes that its customers could personally design and customize online. It was a truly innovative and trailblazing concept. Big name VCs thought so too. And Jodie and her two male co-founders raised about $30 million over the life of the business before coming to the heart-wrenching decision to cease trading in August last year. Despite reported revenues of more than $100 million in 2017, they simply couldn't get enough customers and scale to make the business sustainable in the long term. Must have been heartbreaking. Jodie was the creative director and public face of Shoes of Prey, so coming to terms with having to shut down the business and its global offices has been particularly confronting for her, having spent the past 10 years living and breathing the brand. Yeah, absolutely. And we're completely thrilled to have Jodie on the podcast this week. It's her first podcast since closing her venture down. She shares the inside stories and key lessons she learned in her decade-long journey with us and talks about the book she's just launched called Reboot, more than you ever probably wanted to know about starting a global business. It's probably the world's longest book title, but it's a great one. Stay tuned at the end of the episode as we're giving subscribers a chance to win one of 10 copies of this hot off the press and brave book. Jodie shares her story and her lessons in an incredibly generous and brave way, and we think you'll agree. Enjoy this unique conversation with Jodie Fox. Jodie Fox, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you so much for having me today, and I love the name of your show. Oh, thank you. Yes, it's it's fun. Now, where are we speaking to you? Are you in LA at the moment? I am. I'm dialing in from Los Angeles at Venice Beach. 
Fantastic. Well, we are so excited and thankful to have this opportunity to speak to you at such an exciting time. You have a book about to go live and we can't wait to dive into that. But before we do, a question we ask all of our guests typically, and it helps our listeners understand a little bit about you. Nowadays, if you're at a dinner party and you meet someone you've not met before, how do you introduce yourself? Okay, so given the amount of identity changes I've gone through this year, that is one of the most terrifying questions because I'm still figuring out who I am after closing my business. Today, the way that I would say it is, hi, I'm Jody. I built a fashion label over 10 years that I've recently um, closed, and I've just finished writing a book about it, and I'm looking for my next venture. Exciting. Yeah, I can imagine it really must be a morphing of your sort of sense of identity, this kind of transition phase that you're going through. It honestly was, and still is in many ways, one of the most extraordinary experiences that I've had as an adult, because for 10 full years, you know, until the 28th of August, 2018, when I walked into a room, I would be, hi, I'm Jodie Fox. I'm the co-founder of Shoes of Prey. And, you know, that kind of carried a, a story and an identity and a purpose with it that was very driven and clear. And so once that shifted, and particularly as the face of the brand, you know, there's a lot attached to that. And once that shifted and closed, I, you know, it's, it's, I think when you have a fairly alpha business personality, it's very confronting to not be so defined. And I mean, maybe it's not even alpha business, maybe it's just human. You know, we like to have that kind of clarity about ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're going to dive into that fascinating journey that you've been on and are, of course, still going through in a moment. But another thing we like to do with our guests is just touch at least briefly on you know, your early beginnings. And if we think back to your childhood, what would you say is most memorable about you know, growing up? My goodness. So I grew up in a country town in, it was called Lismore in New South Wales. And I would say I had a pretty fun childhood. (laughs) Maybe the most memorable thing for me, lots of people say that your cousins are your first friends. And I just have such awesome memories of making up games in my auntie's backyard. (laughs) And Uh you know, being a mess and running around with my cousins and feeling that kind of breathless joy that you get as a child. I think that's probably some of the most vivid stuff that I experienced in my childhood that I still, you know, really think fondly on today. The carefree days of a country childhood. How wonderful. And how would you have been described as a, as a a kid? Do you think, how would people typically describe you? Gosh, I, you know, I haven't thought about something like that maybe ever. You're definitely coming in with the tough questions today. Look, I was definitely a warrior as a child. I remember mother dousing my my pillow with lavender <laughs> every evening and you know trying to learn about meditation at a very young age and things like that so I was a bit of a warrior. I think that I was also a kid that liked being around adults. I remember being told that I was a bit that I was older than my years, which I always felt really proud of as a child. Yeah, and knowing you today and hearing about the warrior and wanting to be liking being around adults, would you say you were a pretty earnest and sort of hardwired for being a high achiever at, at a pretty young age? I feel really lucky that with my parents, I came from a generation where we were the first generation of cousins and, you know, my sister and I to have the opportunity to go to university. And I know that, you know, my father and mother kind of in the background, even though they hadn't had those educational opportunities, 
were really beautifully supportive in sharing with me visions for what the world could be if I, you know, worked that little bit further or achieved that little bit more academically. And so I think that there probably was really authentic motivation for achieving and not for the sake of achieving, but because achieving meant being able to have the freedom to choose, which is also how I view finance as well. I view money as something that gives you the freedom to make choices and a good education with good marks also gives you the freedom to make choices. So I guess there was a really nice authentic foundation for that set by my parents. Wow, what a great thing they did giving you that vision because it sort of gives you that intrinsic motivation, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel really grateful. And my, my parents as well were, their names are Lucia and Keith. And I'm sure that they will listen to this. So I want to make sure that I, I name names because they're unbelievable people. You know, I, I toyed with becoming a ballet dancer. I toyed with all of these different kinds of version of what that success would look like. And, you know, they kind of gave me the freedom to explore all of those paths in terms of how I spent my time and energy. You actually went a completely different path, didn't you? You qualified as a lawyer. And then I think you then went into advertising. What did you learn about yourself in that period of time? Because it sounds like it was quite a journey. It really was. The journey, particularly with law, was a very, very, very tough one. I enjoyed very little about the study. And I think ultimately it was because it's not where my heart was. I felt like the reason that I decided to take law instead of dance was because I felt that I was so creatively wired that I just didn't understand how the world worked. And I wondered how I would further the next generation of our family if, you know, in sort of (laughs) these ideas of what I could do if I had this great education, you know, unless I really got in and understood how the world worked. So while the motivation was really, again, very authentic, the fact was that my heart wasn't (laughs) at all interested in the content. Do you feel like it was one of those things that you just had to do in your journey to where you were going? Yeah, definitely. Because of my upbringing, you know, was not a very well off one. I think that there were some sort of key building stones and I was much more conservative with respect to risk. So it felt like that was absolutely the right path to walk down at that point in time. And I don't harbor any regret about it because ultimately I did get that capacity and perception of mind with respect to the world that I had wanted to get from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting then if you looked at risk in that way that you then jumped into starting your own company and you co-founded Shoes of Prey back in 2009 with your then husband, Michael Fox, and, and another friend, Mike Knapp. It's really interesting that you did that because that must have been a huge jump that you took. It really was. And I think that I had seen what it felt like over a reasonably long period of time of studying my law degree and actually practicing as a lawyer. I could see that for me, the price of doing something I didn't enjoy was so much higher (laughs) than taking a pay cut. So that was kind of my first level of risk taking. And then you're right. The second one jumping into the business was much more intense. I really think as well, like knowing that my then husband was open to that kind of risk as well was certainly something that gave me comfort to do it. Although like it, it did put, you know, both of our eggs in the same basket, which is also a risk, but we, we went from, you know, sort of dual income to splitting my income amongst actually the three co-founders when they both left, because they both left ahead of me, uh, then to all three of us having no salary at all for a period of time while we were 
getting the business to a place that made sense to draw a salary. Wow. We'll explore that a little bit more. But if we sort of think about the fact that, you know, you built this amazing business, you know, it grew very fast. You relocated to LA. You raised over 10 years, millions of dollars. You won numerous awards. And then sadly, the business was put on hold last year. And I think you wound down earlier this year. And your your new book talks about that journey. You know, if you had to pick three words that describe how you feel about that journey, what would they be? Oh, um, it's really interesting. You know, the, we've just passed the year anniversary of having ceased trade. And um, I put the company into a solvent liquidation in Australia in February. And so those kind of emotions and are still very, very close to the surface. And I guess in some ways it's an awesome time to talk about it because I can really properly share what this feels like. By the same token, I think that I may not be as articulate <laughs> now as I might be in a couple of years' time when I've really had the chance to get the benefit of hindsight. So in this moment, the three words that I would use would firstly be proud even though this is not a business that worked out, this is really my first big run at a business and we achieved a lot in that first big run. So I think proud is the first one. Thank you. I think the second one is confronted because literally every day of showing up to Shoes of Prey, even on the good days, we're confronting because every single day we were working on a huge vision and that required a lot of us individually and from the fiber of who we were to get done. Confronting can be a positive, you know, thing that really sort of motivates you and gives you that big boot to get up and get going and try reach that big goal. And confronting can also mean that I'm way outside my comfort limits and things aren't going the way that I hoped and it's scary. So I think confronting is probably a good fit. <laughs> yeah. And then the third word, I think grateful because I have this opportunity to share something very honest and truthful. And it's my hope that in sharing this in a very non-spun, honest way, that it'll help other people on their journeys as well. And I feel grateful to have the opportunity to go through and get these lessons out because I don't know that you always get the opportunity to pull those kinds of lessons through in life. But I walk away from that experience with confidence in my capacity as an executive, which I'd never, ever had or believed in before. I walk away with my head held high about the way that I handled the good times and the bad times and with the best MBA that the world can offer. <laughs> That's for sure. Nobody can pay for that one. I think it's absolutely wonderful that you're being vulnerable and sharing these lessons that you've had because it doesn't happen very often, does it? We hear the glossiness of being an entrepreneur and we don't hear the hard bits, the failures, which, you know, undoubtedly it's a highly risky place to be. And Jodie, how hard was it to spend the time actually reliving those moments as you were writing the book about the 10-year journey? I mean, I think my husband would have a really great point of view on that to share. 
<laughs> Let's bring him in. I, I think he had to relive some of it with me too. Um, look, it was really tough. So some of it was just there were days that I would write chapters and I would just feel so elated remembering the people that had been there and the culture and the family like of our team and what we were achieving together in those you know, I'd sort of bounce away from the computer at the end of those days. And then, you know, other days when I'd really be reflecting on and sharing something that was awful because there were incredibly tough moments, particularly over the, the last six to eight months of the company's existence, where it was so emotional that I just, looking, my husband would ask me, oh, you know, what did you write about today? And I'd just be like, I, you know, babe, I love you. I just can't. I can't live it again <laughs> today. You can have a look at the screen, <laughs> but I can't, I can't talk about it again today. I just, you know, kind of need to take a moment. I feel that even all the way through to reading the very last proofread of the book, I found that every time I read it, I would end up crying and, you know, it really is still that raw and real. So I think there's a lot in there. And in some ways, because it is so raw and real, you know, I hold uh, the same amount of fear as I do for people to read it as to not read it <laughs> because obviously if no one reads it, that's a bad outcome. And then I think, God, if people read this, they'll know so much about me and the journey. And is that, you know, a safe place to be? Because it really opens up the opportunity for people to take the story into their hands once it leaves mine and judge it. And how does that make you feel? Terrified. <laughs> Absolutely terrified. And my hope is that when people do read it, that they take away the stuff in there that's a gift in terms of sharing and find ways to have conversations with me or their peers about stuff that they feel critical about. Because then in that case, then the criticism is totally worth it because it's going to foster conversations that, you know, hopefully will take us all to a higher level in our business and, you know, our holistic self when we are going through tough things in business. That's such a generous and a brave stance to take. And here we are, you know, literally we are days away from the book being available to everyone. And I couldn't urge people more highly to sort of go out and get a copy. But how are you going to cope with, you know, that near to the surface rawness and the sort of those feelings that you just described? I have no idea. Um, so it's, it's sort of funny. Um, two days before the book was sent to the printers, I was saying to my husband, I was like, why did I write a book? This was a terrible idea. <laughs> and because I think I was so focused on the project itself and making sure the stories were making sense and that they were written in a way that was digestible and that it really, you know, did give across, you know, sort of share some of those lessons um, that I forgot that people would read it <laughs> or might read it. And then this idea of it, you know, being in everyone else's hands and, people offering opinions on it is, you know, is in some ways kind of opening up a wound for people to poke at. So I am emotionally like feeling quite vulnerable about it. You know, I mean, there are two things. So one, like I said before, if it, if it fosters discussion, I have to really go back to why I wrote the book. You know, that discussion is not about the purpose of that is not about me. <laughs> the purpose of that is for other people to look through it and maybe take things away from it and maybe putting it through some criticism is the way that they'll take something out of it. So that's, it. The second thing, and this is certainly far more selfish, is that this is a cathartic exercise to draw a line under the last 10 years of my life and to move, to have the opportunity to move forward. You know, there's definitely something in both of those things that make me still believe through all of this fear <laughs> that it's the right path. 
I think it's a very worthwhile path. If you had to summarise or pick one or two key lessons from your perspective at least, what would they be? Sure. So, gosh, I think that the first one would probably be, and I know that I rabbit on about this on my YouTube channel as well, (laughs) but just knowing that you're never ready. You You have to do everything before you're ready. Frequently, the only time that you'll actually feel ready to step up on and try something that's really hard or scary or whatever it is, is once you've done it. So just do everything before you're ready would be one of them. The second one would probably be your normal. <laughs> there are so many things that we go through in our careers, whether you're in you know, a corporation, whether you are starting and running your own business. But as we reach greater levels of seniority, there are, you know, a lot of things that are just absolutely not talked about that are extremely personal, Um, whether it's politics in the office, whether it is crafting your next step forward and how to do that well, you know, whether it's figuring out how to get a project up or what to do when a project didn't go well. And we often talk about all of those things in quite corporate terms, but, you know, we're human beings. There's so much that goes with that. And so I, I think probably yeah, number two would be your normal <laughs> and you are not alone. And thirdly, one of the big takeaways that I hope people get is a sense of how to be curious rather than judgmental of failures of themselves and others. So a good example is let's say something goes wrong and you look at your manager and you say, oh, well, I would have made a different decision. And in fact, when I was in this meeting, I specifically said we should do something else. And, and really, look, that's that's not helpful. <laughs> what the really helpful thing to do is to think about why did my manager make that decision? What data set was available? Did I have visibility to all of that? What can I learn from it? And that kind of curiosity is something that would have two really great outcomes. One is that we would all be a bit less scared of failing because that type of judgment wouldn't be there. And that's human to not enjoy that. And secondly, we would spread learning way faster and all improve way faster. Love that. That's such such an important mind shift, isn't it? Having read the book, I'm sure that there's many, many other things that they're going to take away as well. (laughs) Yeah. Like how to work with your ex-husband. Yeah. Well, that's a great segue. So, you know, you did go into business with your husband at the time. And then really sadly, three years in, you decided to split. That must have been so difficult. I just can't imagine. How did you cope on a day-to-day basis? It was super tough. We, Michael and I were very lucky that we had a very amicable split. We really diligently <laughs> tried every kind of therapy. We tried <laughs> every kind of meditation you know, we really pushed to find the answer. And so when it came time to really make the call, I think we both had come to peace to the greatest extent that we could, that that was the outcome. And I remember sitting in our apartment and I remember saying, you take everything. I don't want anything. And he was like, no, 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 you take everything. I don't want anything. (laughs) And so it ended up being this quite fun and funny conversation. So the, the challenge really came in other ways. So I moved out of the apartment within a week and, you know, it was this weird kind of haze of going to the office and not letting on to anybody what had happened <laughs> because we just kind of needed to come to terms with a whole lot of things ourselves before we started telling everybody So there was kind of this energy going into 
not letting on what was going on to our team. And there was also just mentally processing that change again, like that identity change. You know, I, my identity had gone from being a married woman to someone who was divorced, which is not really ever being done in my family. I come from a Roman Catholic Sicilian family. (laughs) I'm lucky that love prevailed um, in every instance. And we all looked after each other through that process, but it was exhausting. So, you know, just the exhaustion of trying to turn up every day, figuring out which box my clothes were in and it was really tough. And what stage was the business in when this happened? So I think, yeah, so we had just, we'd raised one round of capital at that point. So we were funded and we were, you know, in the very early but high growth stages of the business. The other tricky thing about that too is being funded all of a sudden two co-founders divorcing each other is not a personal matter. It's something that was in the risk assessment of every person who put money into the business. So, you know, as directors, we really had a duty of care to share that with our board. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, so I remember the day of the board meeting and, but yeah, I remember wondering how that they would take it because the board could also ask one of us to leave or, you know, but to their credit, they kind of asked, you know, the right questions about, whether we felt we could work together, what that would look like. And then we moved on to the next discussion. And I just think that was one of the most stoic (laughs) ways, in fact, that they could have dealt with us where from a corporate perspective, they certainly could have treated it in many other ways. Yeah. And then there was, of course, telling the team. And that was kind of in hindsight funny where we were thinking about telling everyone one by one because we're all really close and maybe we should do it one by one. I was like, no, people will be upset and they'll walk out and they'll go to the office crying or sort of a bit off in terms of their mood. People will think we're firing them. <laughs> so we ended up bringing in like a team at a time and telling them. And by then two months had passed and no one had picked or no one let on that they had picked that we had divorced or uh, separated. So really there was evidence for them all to see that they could have comfort that we would continue to work together well. Yeah. Well, what huge testament to you and Michael to actually be able to work well together. I think it takes a real emotional maturity to be able to do that. It really does. I'm really proud of us. And he actually met his wife today, not too long after that. And she really went on a lot of, Katrine really went on a lot of that journey as well. (laughs) And I think that she kind of deserves to be included in that emotional maturity and the journey of all of that as well, because it's not frequent that as an adult, you can go through something like that and still say that you've got that level of respect and relationship with those, you know, people that you went through something so traumatic with. Yeah, absolutely. It just shows you can work through anything really, doesn't it? Honestly, yes. And and resilience is a big, big part of leading a senior career and, and continuing to push into leadership. So um, yeah, I think I, one thing I know about myself is that I've got that stuff in buckets. Yeah, absolutely. At risk of sort of ha- talking about really all the hard things that happen, we will come back to, you know, the sad demise of the business. But what were your favorite moments in the business? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because, you know, there were amazing moments in the business as well. The first one was something that we dubbed the roadshow, and it was when we had just signed a deal with Nordstrom to open six stores across the US. We opened a test one, like a very early test one first in Bellevue in Seattle, which is their headquarters. And then we opened five more all across America. And the roadshow was a group of us that (laughs) for 10 weeks, every two weeks, we would go and open a new store. And it was one of the most 
intense from moving around and all that kind of stuff, joyful, connected experiences I've had in my entire life. That group of people really just banded together and got it done at such an incredible, incredibly high performance of, you know, in terms of the execution that I've ever seen a team do. That was an absolute high. And, you know, and there were, there were crazy things that happened during that time. I remember opening a store on a Saturday, doing all the speaking and press around that, that night, getting on a plane, landing in Austin at 1 a.m., giving a speech at South by Southwest at 11 a.m., doing interviews and that for that afternoon um, on the Monday morning networking. Monday night, got on a plane to Australia. Wednesday morning, got picked up by Channel 10 at the airport to go straight to the studio to record for two days, 12-hour days, content for Optus, who was sponsoring Shark Tank. And it just was the craziest craziest of times, but it was the best of times. And I just, I will always look back upon that time really fondly. Ah, and did you find, you know, as you were doing, whether it was the road shows or having board meetings with investors, you know, you were the only woman and young, beautiful woman as it, that as well amongst the co-founders and running, you know, business. How did that impact? Did you notice you were treated any differently ever, for example, being the female amongst those three? Ah, so there definitely were times that I was treated differently. However, I would say the investors that invested in the business did not treat me differently, uh, which was, you know, part of, frankly, the caliber of the investors that we had with Shoes of Prey. So I guess the, the times that I noticed it, sometimes I would get greeted with a, oh, wow, you look amazing. And the guys would get greeted with, oh, you know, I love the business. That <laughs> I was like, yeah. you know, it would have been cool for you to just say to all of us, I <laughs> love the business. <laughs> But in, even in saying that, the being treated differently in that sense, I didn't even know that those people who kind of approach things that way were, you know, cognizantly saying those things. You know, the, there are so many reasons that, you know, a guy or a girl will say that. Maybe they think it's polite. Maybe they think that me being the face of the business, that's, you know, I, I want to hear that I'm presenting well for the brand. I actually ended up making a video about it called Can He Say That? It started trending as a hashtag. It was picked up by Al Jazeera and The Guardian because I really wanted to create a conversation because what I'd wished when I walked away from conversations like that, that I'd learned later on was, you know, I should, I should say something like find a nice way to be like, Hey man, like, thank you so much. You know what? Like the next time you meet a woman, the thing she's going to love hearing from you is congratulations on your amazing business and lead with that instead of the way that she looks, because it just sort of creates this really strange sense that, you're taking her looks more seriously than the business. And I know that's not who you are and what you meant to say. <laughs> so I kind of wish that I'd done that. So that's why I built the video about it and wrote a bit about it in the book. Oh, fantastic. So hashtag, can he say that? Huh? I just wanted to build on the women theme here. Mm-hmm. What would your advice be to women who may want to take more risks, but are really struggling with having the courage to leap in? Okay. So the things that I would say are nobody will ever give you permission to do it. Literally no one. So you either make the decision to do it or you stew on it. So I I would just say that don't look for that permission. The only person who's going to give it to you is yourself. Secondly, you don't need to go back to school. You don't need to study more. You don't need to find a way to do those things full time that you're curious about. 
there are so many ways that you can build experience or test, you know, things out in spare time. There's plenty of people who work their way up into industries by going and doing work experience, networking and seeing what skills cross crossover, just having a lot of good conversations with experts in those areas and then finding what your niche is going to be within it. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of times, a lot of the reasons that we choose not to do things are excuses. I'm not saying that to be condescending or mean because I see myself doing it too, but ultimately like you need to get really starkly honest with yourself about the excuses that you're making and whether you actually really do want to go and do that thing or not. And I know in the book, you talk a lot about procrastination and you you suggest that you are a procrastinator, which I find really, really hard to believe. I'm not going to dress it up. I'm a procrastinator. And the thing that I think saves me from being too much of a procrastinator is that particularly over the last 10 years of Shoes of Prey, you know, it's this great saying, which is entrepreneurs live four years to every one year and how my heart, that is true. <laughs> so now, now that I'm sort of redefining what my life looks like and the way that I am in the day to day, I really find that what I would consider to be a slower pace of procrastination is actually not a bad pace to be living life at. And maybe there's still a lesson in that for me because Choose to Pray was the love of my life. And I honestly can say with my hand on my heart that I gave every fiber to it all the way through to the, you know, sort of bitter, bitter, bitter close. And that was at the expense of, you know, my personal life in many ways as well. So yeah, I, I'm still figuring out the procrastination thing, but I would still put myself in that category. <laughs> Well, I say watch this space on that score, but you just talked then about, you know, all the way to the bit of bit of close of this love of your life. Can you talk us through what was your internal narrative at that time when you had to write, I don't know what was the first piece of writing you did, but, you know, certainly there was the Instagram post announcing that you were closing down the business. What was going through your mind and what were you feeling? I am going to warn you, I can, I'm feeling emotional already about that question. So let's just see how we go. You know, it was really pretty painful. I know about myself now that I'm a fight, not flight person. I've always suspected that was the case, but I know without a shadow of a doubt that I am fight. And I think in the moments of leading up to it, I was able to have a level of awareness that was great enough over many, many, many years of work with, this is like quite personal, but you know, and with healers and things like that to stop and take stock of all of the madness, separate out the things that were noise and deal with them respectfully, and then keep stepping forward on that path. That took discipline, but also another really big thing that it took was recognizing what my morals and values were and making every decision in those really tough moments from that place. I think I found a lot of strength in that. But there certainly were cracking moments. So when I wrote that Instagram post, I was sitting in China by myself. I wasn't sleeping very much at all. And in fact, I remember, you know, taking calls at 4 a.m. and midnight and all this kind of stuff, just trying to hustle all of the options together to make sure that I knew that I had done absolutely everything and that I was doing this right. Yeah, sitting in that chair and hitting post on that was just on the tail end of within the last couple of hours of literally letting go of everyone in the company. (laughs) Um, And when I say let go of everyone in the company, you know, that we had customer happiness team in Manila, we had someone in Australia, we had people in 
LA, we had kind of had 140 people in my factory in China that I had to stand in front of and let go by myself. <laughs> and it was just that day I kept my focus because I knew that I had to have the answers for everybody else that day. Yeah. And I knew from a very practical level all the things that I needed to get done. And I don't honestly think that it was until I flew out of China and got back to something of a safe space with my friends and family that the weight of that st really started to compress in on my chest and, you know, really grab me because I just had kind of held that in the periphery until I had done everything. And it manifested in ways like just needing to be busy all the time. I cleaned every possible thing in my apartment. I um, watched every Sopranos episode and pitched articles to Wall Street Journal about it, about Tony's shirts. I, <laughs> um, <laughs> I kept looking for optionality with Shoes of Prey. You know, it was just this manic time of looking for relevance in busyness because I had been busy with so many weighty, important things for so long that I was terrified of stopping and facing it. There was a, a lot of layers to that. There was shame and embarrassment um, as well. There was the sense of letting people down. And when I say that, I mean everyone, not just, I mean, my investors, of course, embarrassing my family, you know, how would they feel? And of course they were great. They didn't think that at all, but this is in my head thinking about our customers, <laughs> you know, just, it was uh, a very layered journey that you can only go through. You can't circumvent that. You can't, if you do, I think you've missed the point. <laughs> um, but if you go through, you come out with a type of capacity and knowledge that is definitely one of the greatest gifts I've ever had. It really sounds like, and I'm sure it was and still is, a, a grieving person. You sort of lost something and like a person almost in your life, didn't you? And, and the massive void that was created afterwards. Oh, 100%. I mean, it's a great way to describe it. It's kind of going to some of that chat about the vulnerability around the book, I think really does stem from the fact that this isn't something that happened many years ago that I've had the chance to really reflect on. I'm still going through it. I think that maybe this is the best time to talk about it because I can give the most real, I can share the most real version of everything now, today. Yeah, that makes sense. And Jody, something we ask all of our guests is, what advice would you give to your 30-year-old self? Ooh, do I have to admit where I am on that spectrum? No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not that long ago. No, it's not that long ago at all. I think that I would give myself actually some of the same advice that I so to speak of as takeaways in the, in the book, which is primarily first, foremost, before everything else, just, you know, do everything before you're ready. Because even though I have successfully applied that on many occasions, it doesn't mean that I don't feel the fear. I still feel the fear every time I enter into something big or, or even it's, it's earliest stages of a vision. So I think I would just keep reminding myself of that, but maybe in a pushier way <laughs> at my 30s than I need to be today with, you know, kind of the experience that I've got under, got under my belt now. Brilliant. Well, Jody, thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. You've been so honest and open, and I think that's very much reflected in the book. You know, it's just so fabulous to hear 
how you're, you know, you're sort of standing on the shoulders of all that learning that you've had and, and taking it to others. So it's a fantastic thing. and We thank you for it. Now, if our listeners want to find out more about where they can get the book, how they can find out more about you, where would they go? Sure. So just go to jodiefox.com.au. There's links to the book on there, a bit more detail on my bio and connections to all of my social channels. Fantastic. And we will put links both to your website, but also directly to your book and also to your YouTube channel and your Instagram where we know you're quite active. I sure am. Well, thank you so much. And I also just wanted to thank both of you for creating such a safe space to have really honest and important conversations. It's something that I hope that proliferates the important lessons that we all face, not only as business people, but as humans. Thank you so much. And thank you for being part of that. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Jodie. Thanks. You could really hear how raw this whole experience still is for Jodie, can't you? Sure could. And of course, it is still really recent in the overall scheme of things. Yeah, absolutely. I really take my hat off to Jodie. You know, writing the book and reliving the demise of a beloved business cannot have been an easy thing to do. No. Not to mention the fear she's now feeling uh, for being judged for the personal stories and experiences she's sharing so publicly in her book. Yeah, that fear of that potential judgment for sure. But, you know, writing a book on a venture that's failed is so much rarer and so much more valuable than writing a book on a success story. It's so important that entrepreneurs like Jody share their failure stories because one, we've got to normalize it. And two, these are the greatest learning opportunities. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. In fact, we've got 10 copies of Jody's book, Reboot, more than you ever probably wanted to know about starting a global business to give away to our subscribers. So head over to our website, don'tstopusnow.co slash win to enter. Yeah, don't miss this chance to secure one of the first copies hot off the press of this great book. Now, I know Jody's about to become a first-time mum as well as launching a book. Uh, But something tells me she'll be stepping back into the startup arena again, don't you think? I think so. I think you can sort of tell it's sort of baked into her DNA now. And I think she's someone who's also clearly got quite a lot of ideas swimming around in that brain of hers. So yeah, watch this space, I reckon. Yeah, well, we wish her luck in all of her future ventures. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Don't forget to enter on our website to win a copy of Jody's great book. Ciao for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.